God has been good to us. I just want to start with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into our text. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord God. Father God in heaven, Lord, we glorify you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, in heaven for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for Calvary. We thank you, dear God, in heaven for the blood that was shed. We thank you, dear God, in heaven for canceled sin. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for all of your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace, Lord, which abounds to us, Lord, which your favor, which is poured out upon us, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for who you are and for the change you've made in our lives, Lord. God, we just worship you. We thank you, Lord God, for this time together, this time in your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you'll use it, Lord, despite the stumbling lips, Lord, despite the words that fail, Lord. I pray, Lord, it is your will, Lord, to speak to your children. And I pray, God, you'll do that today. God, that you'll have your way and you'll speak to our hearts, Lord. Strengthen us, encourage us, Lord, challenge us, Lord. Give us food for the road, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, if you could turn to the book of 2 Timothy. Um, I decided this morning I'd uh, go old school and I'd bring my King James Version with me. So it'll be a wee bit... Um, it'll be good to read. 2 Timothy. Isn't God wonderful? Hasn't he, doesn't he mean so much to us? Isn't he precious to us? God is a good God. Second Timothy chapter one, and I'm gonna read a few verses here to set the scene, to, to give us a context. And if we start at verse six, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us to an holy calling, not, on, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. And verse 12, for the, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that his, he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You can't just help read that last verse. And if you know the old song, have it start going in your head. Frequently, when I found when I was preparing this message that uh, I wouldn't read the text, I was starting to quote the song. It happens when you grow up in a, a church that sings a lot of hymns, you know, years ago. Here, the Apostle Paul had spent many years traveling throughout Asia, throughout Europe. He had been planting churches. He had been preaching in synagogues. He had clocked up many miles, as we'd say. Weary miles. They weren't easy miles to do because there was no buses. There was no planes. There was no mode of transport. They probably didn't even have horses. They didn't have donkeys. They would ride for big distances. He walked many, many miles to spread the gospel. He preached in the synagogues for as long as he could and then he was kicked out of the synagogues. He would gather with other believers and stir up their faith and remind them of the important things, explain to them the gospel. So here we are in 2 Timothy, wearied after many miles and many beatings, many imprisonments. He'd gone through it all. He'd suffered for the sake of the gospel. He had put up with the, the, the world, the flesh and the devil coming against him in all manner of ways. And here he is, here in a cell in Rome. He's at the end of the line. Through the bars, he's seen many people walk down the corridor to the room at the end, to the door at the end, I should say, and going out into the execution square. He'd seen them go out, and he knew that his fate was sealed. He knew that the end was near, and that soon he would have to make the same journey. 
And here in 2 Timothy, he sits down for a moment. He gathers what parchment he could. And as his, his, his passion was to write, so as was his passion, he would sit down and he gathered the, in, in what light he could and he penned a few words. And who did he think of? He thought of his Timothy. He thought of Timothy, his young progeny. He thought of the kid who'd grown up under his ministry. Maybe he'd led Timothy's mom and his grandmom to the Lord. Maybe he'd known Timothy since he was a wee nipper, as we'd say. Maybe he'd known him for years and he'd seen him over the times he'd visited the same church. He'd seen him grow up, getting bigger and getting bigger. Seen him coming and asking questions. He had a special place in Paul's heart. And here in his vital letter, his death row letter really, he writes to his beloved son, Timothy. Here the old guard is handing the reins over to the, the new generation. You know, on the edge of eternity, sitting as Paul was, you don't mess, mess around with things that are trivial. You don't spend time becoming obsessed with things which are gone today. You don't worry about things that happen on Facebook whenever you're on the edge of eternity. There's so much on, on, in this world, so much in our society, so much in our culture that is obsessed with the trivial, obsessed with the temporal, obsessed with things which are gone tomorrow. So much. So what does he say to Timothy? What words of wisdom can he impart? The persecution has started. Nero is, is burning Christians in Rome. It's madness, he's riding around them in a chariot. Sure, there'd been persecution before, but this is the first time the persecution had become a, a, a systemized thing where other people are going, oh, the emperor's persecuting. As a governor, I think I'll persecute as well. It was spreading. It wasn't popular to be a Christian at this time. It was difficult. Maybe they both together knew people who had been persecuted, who had died for the faith. Here Paul is in prison and he's on death row. So what does he say to Timothy? What words of wisdom does he impart? Does he say to him, run for it, they're coming. Can you hear their boots? They're on their way. Does he say to them, you know, it's not important, your life, go live your life, marry, settle down, have a children, go do that. Those are honorable things. But does he say, give up on Christ and the, the gospel and go run for it? Does he say, go get a normal job, go sell purple, go make tents? No, no, no. No, no, this message is a different message than that. See, the apostle Paul here at the end of the line is thinking about the next generation. He's thinking about us in this day. He's thinking about what is to come. This, this letter is honest and hopeful. It is a glimpse of his heart to encourage, to strengthen, to exalt, and to remind Timothy. He wants to stir something up within us, stir something up within Timothy, stir something up in us. The message to Timothy and us is clear. The gospel message is too important to ignore or forget. In this generation to us, oh beloved, it is too important for us. It's too important for our families. It's too important for our neighbors. It's too important for our town. It's too important for our country to forget this gospel. This message that Paul was explaining, Timothy was carrying on and we today hold dear. This message is important. This gospel is of the highest priority. So he starts, and I'm going to focus on, on, it, on just on that verse. I'm really going to just unpack that verse, verse 12. He starts there, he says, For this cause I suffer. For this cause I suffer. I went through many things for the gospel's sake. <coughs> Excuse me. We all know the things that he went through. In 2 Corinthians 11, I'll just read this to you. 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28, those people who can turn to it quickly. It says, um, well, let's start at the 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. 
Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. See, this message wasn't a popular message. It wasn't an easy message to bring. He was going to the Jews and he was saying to them, oh, the Messiah has come. And they didn't like that because they had missed the boat. They didn't like that because it, it, it reminds you of the prophets in the Old Testament. Remember when the, man of God, the prophets were preaching to the king and they were saying, good things, good things, good things. And then the man of God came along and said, no, judgment is coming. This is not right. And they slapped him and said, how come God is speaking to you and not me? Because they recognize the truth. See, the response to the truth is often a hostile response. We have to remember that. So Paul here was bringing the truth to the Jews and to other people. And he was saying, uh, yeah, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. They missed one. Can you see him doing it? They missed one. He was happy for that. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwrecked. At night, a night and a day, and I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings, painfulness in watchings often, in hunger and thirst in fasting often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. There was things that were bombarding him on the outside, things that he had to put up with to share the gospel. But there was also those things that were going on in his own mind, and his own heart. Because we can, we, can, we can live and serve God, but there's, the devil will still whisper to us. Our flesh will still whisper to us, oh, there's an easier way to do this. There's an easier way to live. You don't really have to put up with all this hassle. But here Paul had a passion. He had something that he couldn't let go of, something he couldn't let be. He suffered for the gospel. You know, the Christian experience is not a struggle-free existence. It's not a pain-free existence. It's not a trouble-free one. I wish I could tell you that once you get saved, everything will be all right and we'll be bouncing along and we'll have springs on the carriage and it'll be all okay. But the truth is we live in a, a world that is far from God. It's not an easy life, but it's the best life. When Paul writes at this time, it's Nero is in the, the throes of his persecution. Christians are being tortured and martyred. Christians are living in fear of the authorities. I, I studied this in, when I was in high school. It was fascinating to read how men and women, just normal, everyday, five-eighths, put up with stuff. What things they went through for the sake of the gospel. I think we take some things too lightly. I think maybe on one degree, we're too familiar with it. And I just want today to stir us up, to remind us of things that are important, to remind us, as Paul is doing here in 2 Timothy, of things that are eternal. We take these things too lightly. You know, I've read stories about men and women who would, would have been pushed forward by the authorities and tortured, people who went through many horrific things, that we in this day would go, what about his human rights? What about his human rights? What about their rights? In this day and age around the world, there's people giving up everything for their faith. People who endure great hardships. People who are, uh, find it difficult in some countries just to find a house in a neighborhood because they're a Christian. We don't want any of you Christians living in our neighborhood. We just want whatever religion or faith they are. There's other people who find themselves locked in prison for many years with no explanation except for, you're, you're, we don't like you. There's people who are just killed. You see the, the horrific stuff going on in Egypt and Syria against Christians. I, it doesn't hit the media because it's, it's a bigger picture. They're looking at a different picture. But churches burning, people being killed on their way home from church. And how do we suffer? Do we suffer a wee bit of ridicule? Are we a wee bit oppressed? Oh, you're just a silly Christian. Is that all we get? Is that, is that the worst suffering we do? You're irrelevant. Christianity, it's irrelevant. The gospel, it's irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. 
Is that our persecution? Is that our suffering? In this day and age with the rise of multiculturalism and the PC culture where you just can't say anything about them because that's just their lifestyle. That's the way they want to live. That's their culture. That's their background. You can't say anything. That gives rise to an apathy, to a sit back and let someone else go. Let someone else who is called to be an evangelist go. Thank God for people who are called to be evangelists. If they didn't go, I sometimes wonder about our generation coming. I'm not just preaching to to us, beloved. I'm preaching to myself here. I think this is something that we all need. I think we need reminders. We've had it for the last week, about the last few weeks, uh, the last month even, for about the gospel and about the importance of the gospel. In this day and age, it's not a popular message. So know this Christian life, it is not an easy life. It's not an easy life that marks the life of a believer, but it's a devoted life. It's a sincere life. One that continues, continues unwavering in the midst of storms. There's people out there, it's not all doom and gloom, there's people out there who in their everyday life share the gospel with their neighbor. Tell them the good news. There's people who go on a mission to, uh, to various gatherings of people. And they tell them the gospel. They tell it in a normal way, in a way that they understand. They don't come with some big theology. They come with words that people understand. Just if you went to India, you wouldn't necessarily go with the the English language. You might go there with Hindi and learn their language and speak to it in them. In the same way, we must communicate the gospel in their own language. And as believers, this suffering, this persecution is good for us. I remember, one, I remember one girl I went to school with and she was a believer and, and she, was a, she believed that we need a united Ireland. And I was like, really? She wanted a united Ireland because she thought once we're in the middle of a, a, a Catholic majority, then we'll be persecuted and we'll be driven out to share the gospel. I never heard anyone say that before that. Maybe the easy life isn't the right life. In Psalm 119, 71, uh, David writes, and he says, it has been good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. You know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows what way we will react to things. You know, when everything's hunky-dory, when everything's sun shining and all's right with the world, do we seek God diligently? Do we call out for his intervention, for his hand of help? Do we seek his face when everything's right? When there's a a nice fat lump of money in the bank, when the car's running well, when there's plenty of oil in the tank at the house, do we seek God? All too often we just let it go. So Paul suffered here for the gospel. He suffered to share with others the message because it was important to him. The next part of the next line I want to look at then is, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. It's a strange thing to say. You know, really, when you think about it, you know, I'm not ashamed. You know, in our day and age, we might understand that. We might translate that as uh, people out there will look at Christianity, will look at the belief that there is a God that we can't see. They will look at that and they'll think, you're ignorant. But you know what? I'm not ashamed anyway. That's not what he's talking about here. Because in this day, many, many people believed in God. In our day, majority of the planet believe in some sort of God or gods, some sort of spirits. It's not what he's talking about. It's a strange thing to say, though. Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Maybe it's to do with our, our demeanor and the way in which we present the gospel. Maybe we don't have a conviction I think we need more people who preach with conviction. I think we need more believers who live a life convicted that we have the truth. It's a strange thing to say, unless maybe the prevailing attitude at the time saw suffering, saw the hardships he went through. Maybe they saw it negatively. Maybe some people saw him as a failure. They went, you know what? If you're the great apostle, you're more than a conqueror. Why are you in jail? Why are you being beaten? 
Why do people hate you? Surely people should love you if you're the great apostle. But he said he was not ashamed. You know, I've, I've met Christians like that, you know. I remember going through, a few years going through some hard things and I remember meeting believers and they were like, you know, they were sort of questioning me like, what sort of secret sin do you have in your life? And I was like, what? What? I was like, do you not read your Bible? I'm not putting myself on a pedestal, but you know, people in the Bible suffered. People went through stuff. Look at Joseph. Okay, Joseph was a wee bit arrogant. He shouldn't really have told his brothers the stories of, about his dreams and his visions. He really maybe shouldn't have, but at least he was being honest. And he was persecuted. He was thrown into, he was sold to slavery. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. What would we think of a church leader who preached the gospel and was imprisoned? What about someone who preached righteousness? It's a wee bit different, isn't it? We start thinking to them, oh, righteousness. Is there any grace in that righteousness? We start to ask questions like that. But Paul said, I am not ashamed. Paul, the great philosopher, apostle, teacher, He's alone in a cell in Rome, and he says, I am not ashamed. He was a student of the great Gamil. He had a, he had a pedigree. He had a, a, a title, as it were, within the Jewish community. They would go, oh, Gamil trained you? That's pretty good. And here he is, reduced to eating prison food and feeding off scraps. It actually says in the same passage, in the, in the same passage there, it says that all Asia has turned against me. He's not walking the prosperous, blessed, and peaceful life, but is instead on death row. And he says, I am not ashamed. I could have had so much more. See, there's a wee bit of an element where pride could come in there. Pride could come in, you know, I deserve better. You know, I personally uh, think that one of his thorn in the flesh was pride. Because remember, he used to go, he went on about, I, I'm a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Or, you know, I have a pedigree. I'm a great man. But no, no. Here he is in prison, suffering. And he says, I am not ashamed. He has no following of students in awe of him, no seat of authority at a university or a theological college. He's bruised, beaten, scarred. His body's twisted. His mind is haunted by thoughts about what could have been. And yet he says, I am not ashamed because deep down, he's still got a grip on God. Deep down, he remembers the message and the reason that he was called and sent. He said in Romans 1, 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Do we have a grip on the gospel? Do we share that confidence that we have the, the, the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation? Do we understand that? I don't mean understand it, but understand it here. Paul wasn't going to let go at the end because he knew this gospel was a great gospel. This was a mighty gospel. Do we see the gospel as good news for our generation? Do we see this as good news for those people in the street who have no, no thought of things like this? Many people in this life don't understand that they're here for eternity. They don't understand that they will last forever. They don't understand whenever we talk about eternity and, and you know, being, uh, living in heaven or hell and things like that. We don't, they don't understand it. They have no idea. You have to explain to it. You have to get down to their level. But everyone knows the time is passing. Everyone knows the time flies. We're born, I know I was born, uh, a couple of weeks time it'll be my birthday and I know exactly the day and I was born at 10.30 at night and when I grew up I was as I was uh, being fed there was feeding time there was sleeping time there was changing time T life is surrounded by time we're used to it everyone in the street out there can adhere to that and attest to that time is passing for the kids, they're getting ready to go back to school. The summer is over. Time is passing. We are familiar with the idea. And yet, we continually comment on the fact that time is passing. 
If it was so normal and so natural to us, which it should be, surely we wouldn't really notice it passing. Surely to some degree or other, we would just accept it and nod and go, that's all right, I gotta be there at that time. But there's something about us. There's something inert in us. There's something placed in us you know, it speaks, that, it speaks in the Bible that God has placed eternity in their hearts. There is something in us that recognizes time is passing and I am getting older. Time is passing and I have to get on. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis. And he, said, he's, he said that, it, that this, remarkable, this remarking on the passing of time is like uh, a fish who's continually surprised at the wetness of water. Because it makes no sense. Unless, unless you're, you're born for another time, unless there was something in us, unless there was something about us that would live forever. We might not need to, we might not articulate to our neighbor and our friends and our families about the fallen state of man. You say the phrase, it's a theological phrase, but nothing in this day and age is more, uh, is better documented than the falling state of man. Turn on the TV, you see what's happening again. I mentioned Egypt and Syria. You mentioned any country throughout Africa that's got torment and, uh, <coughs> and strife. You look at our own news locally. You look at you know, people getting murdered, people getting robbed, people getting beaten, abuses. The state of man is very well documented. It doesn't take long to, to say, yeah, man's pretty messed up. Why is it we have so many laws? All the laws do is they, they, they deal with our, the fruit of sin. They don't deal with the root of sin. They'll never. I often listen to the news and they're talking about bringing out another law to, to curb teenage drinking or binge drinking or, or the speeding or something else. And I'm going like, man's fallen. That's why you've got so many laws. That's why you have to bring them out over and over and over again. When on the plane, whenever you get on the plane, and which was, we will be in October, you know, what is the announcement? You know, federal law prohibits the tampering with, disabling or destroying, destroying lavatory smoke detectors. Why do you have to put so many qualifications in there? Because apparently you can tamper with something without actually destroying it. Because you can destroy something without actually messing with it. You know. But that's our nature. Man's fallen nature is that to, to rebellion. I met someone the other day in the, in the bank. Boy, he was rebellious. Oh, I, was, I was walking in grace. It was really tough. You, you walk in and there's where the queue starts. And uh, so I walked in. This guy was just in front of me. And, and we walked in and there was a, uh, there was a woman standing there. And, and he stood, or she stood, and he stopped this far away. And I'm going like, right. So I just stopped behind him. I thought, fair enough. I'm standing there, just standing there. And uh, next thing you know, that girl moved. And the sign says, please wait here. And he still didn't move. And next thing, another person came, and another person came, and another person came. And they were all standing up right behind me, and the queue was going out the door, and he wouldn't move. And I was going like, you just don't want to conform. <laughs> oh, you rebel. The rebel. I wanted to lay hands on him. Push him over there, you know. <laughs> we are, by nature, rebellious. By nature, we rebel against things. This is the amazing thing about the Bible and the thing about God is he puts his finger on right where we are. Because the Bible explains exactly why we are rebellious. It explains exactly why our hearts are, are prone to wander and prone to do things. It explains exactly our condition. The Bible says we were created by God and we are fallen. We were created as his highest creation, the pinnacle of, of the creation of the earth. They put man at the top. No, we're not angels. No, we're not divine, but we are still his greatest creation. We bear his image. We bear the image and likeness of God. That, that doesn't mean we look like him because we all look so different. But in our, in our nature, in our tendencies, we've still got those glimpses of the divine. And then we turned against God. We all know the story. We all know the gospel. But this is the gospel that Paul was passionate about. This is the gospel that Paul was saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not afraid to tell people about the gospel. This is the power of God to change people's lives. 
We want to change people by giving them laws, giving them rules, getting them to do things. That's not how you get people to change. We need to share the gospel with them. For many years, certain, you know, in America, they spent a lot of money on lobbying the government in pro-Christian laws and pro-Christian this and, and doing all these type of things, which are all good, they're all right and honorable. Maybe what we should have done and they should have done over there is spend more time sharing the gospel because if you save the people, the people will change the government. This rebellion against God is manifest often in our relationships with each other and with others. But God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to live and make a way through his death and resurrection for us to have peace at last. Now, as objects of his mercy, we can have a relationship with God. No longer at war with every man around us, no longer selfish and self-obsessed, but now refocused, aware that we are made for a better, for a better kingdom. So the human expression is, the human experience, as we all know, because of sin is full of suffering. It's, it's not just believers who suffer. Could you imagine if a, an alien was to come to earth? Where would you take him to show him something, a glimpse of the human experience? How would you translate to him, this is what it means to be human? You take him to the hospital and show him a child being born. Or maybe, you, you know, if he were in the hospital, then you, what about the other words about the people who are sick and dying? Would you take him to school and show him our learning and our education? But then what about the subjects we study? History and the countless wars and atrocities. Geography and the earthquakes, the floods, the tsunamis, the tornadoes, the famines and or maybe we'd take him to something a wee bit more academic maybe we'd take him to the, to the English to literature to poetry but then what about the, the poetry that's all about that's very much focuses on heart, heartfelt sorrow and torment on tough times on struggles you can't read any poems any Shakespeare without seeing struggle and difficulty or maybe you'd take him to a church and show him a wedding this is the, the human experience but then what about a funeral? The human experience for all man is a difficult experience. It's not what it was intended to be. But God is still a good God. God knows what way we were. He knows our condition. And still he made a way, a way for escape, a door of hope. My friend, at the heart of the gospel, we have a cross, the ultimate expression of suffering. That's the message we bring. Listen, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, listen, we have a savior who came down and suffered. He was touched like we were touched. He was affected as we are affected. He's not emotionally removed from our experiences, but he's involved. At the heart of the gospel is a cross. This is the power of God for salvation. In many ways, mankind seeks, in all the different nations of the world, they seek love. They seek justice, forgiveness. They seek reconciliation with their neighbors. All mankind, we can see it throughout the Middle East. You see that in Africa. You see it in Europe. You see it in every culture and every home in our land. We all seek those things, but they only meet in one place. It's at the cross at the cross and in the person of Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this is the message that mankind needs? Do you believe that there's people who, who, who need to hear this? There's, there's people out there who have no clue. Did this message change our lives? Did it affect us? Has it changed us from being what we were to what we are and to what we will be? Do you believe that this is an important message? 
It's a rhetorical question, but we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that the, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Do you believe there's another way to heaven? Maybe being nice and doing your best will get you there. It's never going to be good enough. We know it as believers. We know what we've tried. We know what, what good things people have done and then still done bad things. Does it balance out? If you're a Muslim, it would balance out. You could look at your good deeds and your bad deeds. But God says, your good deeds aren't good enough. And we have embraced, as believers, we have embraced Christ. We've embraced the cross because we believe in him. And we recognize that we are not good enough. This is the power of God unto salvation. I want to I labor the point. I really want to labor the point. This is the power of God for salvation to change us to take us and our society, take people, people who are hell-bent on destruction, people who are cocooned in sin, shrouded in, in selfishness and the ways of the world, they have no idea. This gospel message that we who were sinners now have a Christ, have a savior who came and died for us, who entered our world, who died and rose again, this is a message that's powerful. Paul goes on there to say, for I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able. Here the apostle is expressing the realization of a heartfelt ambition. Remember back in Philippians 3.10, it says, oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And here we are at the end of his life. After living many, many years serving God, sharing the gospel, reading the word. Yes, he only read the Old Testament and maybe he read some of the gospels, but, uh, but he was spent a life with God. And here he is at the end saying, for I know whom I have believed. For I know whom I have believed. He had encountered Jesus on the Damascus road and he had had a change you know, I'm sure just as we do sometimes sit and reflect upon where we have come from, the Egypt that we once lived in. I'm sure he sat and reflected. Maybe he shared his, his message with other people. I'm sure he, said it, he shared it in the, in the synagogue. Oh, I was a, a student of Gamil. Oh, really? Then so the, I would open their ears. They would listen to him. And then he would say, oh, and I persecuted people who didn't believe in Yahweh. Oh, that's very good. I like you then. But I met him. I met the one I was persecuting and he changed me. And he said, looking back, he says, we need to look back to the cross. But oh, that I might know him. And here he is at the end saying, I know him. It's an echo really of Moses. Remember Moses in Exodus 33? He said to God, I pray you show me your glory. God hid him in the cleft of the rock. He passed by and then let Moses see his back. Oh, that I might know him. David in Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. My, my, my. This gospel message has a person at the heart of it. The quest of the apostle's life is our great quest to know God. At salvation, we meet Christ and receive the Holy Spirit into our hearts. You know, I've seen frequently, I've seen, I've, seen, I've seen in the faces of new believers when we're doing the Christianity Explored, I've seen their eagerness to know everything they can know about God. I've seen their eagerness to, oh, I wish I had memorized, I could memorize more, more of the Bible quicker. I've seen that eagerness to really get to grips with the Bible. And I sometimes have to temper it a wee bit and go, yeah, just take your time. It's okay, you'll get there. Don't, don't don't get too far ahead of yourself. Just take your time, step by step, it's the best way. Often in our spiritual, uh, I was going to say spiritual innocence or adolescence, you know, we like to go and we go and we go, what do we believe? What do we believe? What do we believe? We go, no, hang on. What does our church believe? What do the people around me believe? And we go and we go, go around and we pick up titles and tags and we ask, what does our denomination believe? 
not that we're in a denomination, but you know, what is, what is the title over our door? What does that really mean? What does that mean to me? And we start to segregate our church and we believers and we, we label people as you're that, you're that faith or that denomination and you're that one. Oh, and you believe in that and you believe in that. We label everyone and put them into boxes. You know, I, I've been there. I remember growing up and I can remember being, <coughs> as a confession time, I can remember being um, uh, graceless. I was going to say proud and arrogant, but graceless sounds better. I can remember, th- you know, spending time with other believers and, and you know, who, you know, who hadn't grown up in a Pentecostal background and going, you know, there's more for you. There's more for you. And I, and I kept, and I, I had a, an air in myself. I never let it out, but I had a, an attitude where, you know, I know more of a God than you do. Oh my goodness, what a terrible thing. You know, it's not about a denomination. It's not about a label or a tag. It's not about what we know. Look at Cain and Abel back in Genesis. Remember they both had grown up with Adam who'd been in the garden with God. They grew up with him. They knew about God. They had known the, the form of approaching God. They knew that God required a sacrifice every once in a while, an offering. And they both brought their offering to God. Do you remember that? Cain brought grain or, or meal or some sort of loaf or something produce of the earth. Abel brought a, a, a lamb. You know, and often when we hear that message, we hear it preached as, an, yes, but Jesus or God only accepts blood. And so he does. But we've missed something if that's all we think about. They both had the form of godliness. They both knew how to approach God. But the problem, problem wasn't the offering because God actually in the book of Leviticus will receive a meal offering. The problem wasn't the offering. The problem was their hearts. One heart was far from God. One heart was rebellious. And one, heart had a heart, one of them had a heart after God and desired to please him and desired to, to be in fellowship with him. Maybe Abel actually just sat and listened to stories about, about, from Adam about the time in the garden. Maybe Cain was going like, oh. In the book of Ezekiel 23, I'm not, not gonna read from it, but it talks about the two sisters talking about the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom of Israel when it was divided. And the story, it's, it's, it's quite a good story. And it talks about the sisters and the, the northern kingdom, which is one of the sisters, is a, she's a rebellious girl. She just wears short skirts, makeup, goes to the clubs, hangs out with all the wrong people and gets up to all no good. Whereas the southern kingdom, it's described as a, as a girl who's wearing decently length dress. She's wearing a hat. She's nice and properly and modestly covered. She goes to church, she tithes. And yet her heart is far from God. See, God sees the heart. At least the northern kingdom was honestly bad, but the southern kingdom had deceived herself. And that's often the case. We can be so close to the things of God, so close to the gospel of God that we become familiar with it, and we think that it's all right. John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip said to Jesus, he said to Jesus, show us the Father. And verse 9 says, and Jesus said, have I been with you so long a time with you, uh, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He'd been with him all that time, and he didn't even realize, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We can't be too familiar with these things. It's important that we remind ourselves that we lift them up once in a while. We polish them off and remind the value of them. So what we know about God is nowhere near as valuable as knowing God. For he said there, uh, I know whom I have believed. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul talking to the Corinthian church, he said, for I have decided to know nothing among you, among you except Jesus Christ. He didn't ask them what sort of, what was their favorite doctrine? What was their pet uh, doctrine? You know, he didn't ask them what was their uh, ecclesiology or he didn't ask them what was their eschatology. He didn't ask them anything about that. What's your pneumatology? He didn't ask them, do you know Christ? I decided to know nothing among you except Christ. One of the greatest passages in the the Bible, uh, the New Testament for evangelism, I, I think anyway, is John chapter four, 
when it talks when Jesus met the woman at the well. Do you remember the story where he sat and he, he, he spent time with this woman, a Samaritan woman? Oh, this is going to be dangerous. He's going to spend time with a, 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 this woman, and he talks to her. And she asked some theological questions to try and disguise where she was to make herself maybe sound to be a bit more better than she was, a bit more holier than she was. But he cuts right to the core, cuts right to the quick, and he says, he tells her all about herself and about the man she's with and about the men she left behind. And remember, she ran into the town. She ran into the village where everyone would have known her and she had a reputation. And what did she say? Come see a man. Come see a man. That's our message. It's not come see a, a way we worship. It's not come see a way we, what we believe. It's not come hear a great preacher. It's come see a man. Come see a man who told me all about myself. Who put his finger right on my problem and give me a solution. Yes, doctrine and things like that, they are important. But to know God is even more important. It's better to come out of this life knowing God than knowing all of the, you know, to read Bonhoeffer and Gruden and all the rest. So it's great as they are, but it's better to know God. Some of the, some of the biggest giants in the faith I've ever, I've ever met, of people who have never studied anything except the Bible, they've never had a commentary, they've never had a dictionary, they've just had the Bible. Because in the Bible, there's enough. So knowing God gives us strength for the storms of life. Knowing him, knowing his gospel, his message of life, knowing him personally, you can't, can't get past it. I look back at when I was a, a, a kid growing up in a large youth group, and I look at many of the young people who went off into the world and, and lived lives for themselves. And I wonder, I wonder why, why we all went to the same church, we all heard the same sermons, we went to the same youth group, but why did they go away? Why did they wander off? Maybe they never, never knew God personally. They were living in someone else's faith. It's important that we apprehend this for ourselves, that we make this our own. You know, we talked there about suffering and hardship, and it's often through suffering and hardship that we come to know God, uh, that we get to know him better. You know, uh, as many of you know, I'm sure, um, I ride a motorbike, and I've got a friend, you know, I go out and riding on the motorbike and we go to coffee shops. And that's grand, it's great. You talk and you open up and you share. And then one day my bike broke down and my friend drove 20 or 30 miles to pick me up. Then something on the bike broke and I went round to his house and we took it apart and fixed it with his tools in his garage. Because I don't have any tools. And then I had an accident on the bike and I was pinned under the bike, couldn't move. And my friend came and lifted the bike off me. How do you think my friendship is with that person now? Do you think it's a bit deeper? Do you think it's a bit richer? Do you think I value that person a bit more now? See him too in our lives. We look at Christ and we have Christ in the vessel. We have Christ with us when we go through hardships and he comes alongside with his grace and with his strength and with his mercy. And he comes alongside and delivers and helps. It's only through the hardships sometimes that we come to know him more, that we appreciate fully. You know, the scriptures say that he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And he is, I can testify to that. He has been there through thick and thin. Paul at the end of his life is, re, is reminding young Timothy that here you, you might have grown up in the church, you might be helping out and pastoring in a church, but you know what, let's remember the important things. If you've got Jesus with you, you can do it. He'll be with you and he'll be as close to you as he was to me. See, there's no criteria where God says, I'm gonna be close to that person and not to that person. There's no criteria where he says, I prefer redheads to blondes. I do, but God doesn't. There's no criteria where he says, I will choose that person there who's a believer and really get to know them and really, you know, and then there's that person there who 
I'll just keep him at arm's length. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not the Christ I serve. You know, Peter, when he walked on water, he didn't really walk on water. He walked on the word of God. He walked on what Jesus said, come. And it was his relationship with God, his relationship with Jesus, that gave him the confidence and the assurance to go out, step out on the water. And this leads me to our final point. Amen, you all said. He is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Committing ourselves to God, place in his hands those things that have value, eternal things. As it started out there, we were talking about you know, Facebook and we were talking about how this world has become so obsessed with the trivial, with the instant, with the gone in a moment, with things that become, they, they hype it up and hype it up and hype it up and you're going like, but there's nothing there. But we as believers have realized that we have something that's eternal. We've committed to him. At salvation, we acknowledge his lordship and ability to save and redeem. Placing our eternal destiny in his keeping, we can serve him confidently. Jesus said, do not fear those who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy the body, destroy the body and the soul. Do we place value on the eternal? The man on the street doesn't. You know, they really don't. They're not aware of it. We need to share with them. For them, it is to live for the moment, full throttle, full speed ahead, experience as much as possible, get as much as possible, do as much as possible because there's no consequences, there's no price to pay, there's never anything at the end. It doesn't matter anyway. But the reality is that there's a whole different world out there. The reality is that we have something eternal. Here Paul is sharing a message with Timothy almost 2,000 years ago and that we're still talking about it. Here he's passing on to the next generation words that are internal that would then subsequently fuel another generation and another generation and another generation. Our society, our culture, our governments have become so short-sighted. They don't plan too far ahead. I'm shocked hearing the news talking about this HS2 thing in their 2017. That's as far, as far ahead as they often planned because everyone's so short-sighted. It's only till the next parliament. It's only till the next decision. It's only to the next experience. It's only to the next pay packet. And that's why we can walk through this, this world in a different way. Yes, we know the gospel, we have been saved. Yes, we've been redeemed. But we don't, we walk calmly and peacefully through this world knowing that we have an eternal destiny and we have committed to him something that will not be taken away. We have embraced him and committed our eternity to him and he is able to keep us through the storms of life. Jude one twenty four says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is able to keep us. He is able to keep us. In many ways, this verse that we've been looking at and I'm trying to unpack for you, in many ways, I look at this verse as a thumbnail sketch of the Christian experience. First of all, we had conquering through suffering, conquering through the hardships that come against us as believers. He still went out, he still suffered, but he went forward anyway. See, Jesus didn't come and die on the Calvary and conquer despite the suffering. No, 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 he, he went through it. I'm so glad he did. The believer should not be ashamed of the gospel. It's a simple gospel, it's a simple message but so many people don't know what it is. They know the word gospel because it's pop culture now. They know Jesus because it's pop culture right now. They know words like that there, but that's all they are is pop culture. They don't know the meanings of them, the significance of them. But we are not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, I still believe it's the gospel of God and it saves souls, changes people. 
And the believer knows him. We know him. We know whom we have believed and we are persuaded that he is able. And finally, he is able to keep. Here we have, you know, when I was thinking about this message and I'm thinking about Paul in the prison, I also thought of another man in the prison, John the Baptist. There John was sitting in Herod's prison. He'd been questioned and people were, pop, you know, were he was very popular at the time, but he'd been questioned. And he was really in many ways on death row. He might not have fully appreciated that at the time, but remember he sent his disciples to Jesus and they went to Jesus and, and they said to him, you know, are you the one or do we seek another? There in his moments, alone in the dark, he had his disciples visiting him. But he still had the experience with Jesus. Remember the experience of the, when he baptized him? But at that moment alone, he had questions, he had doubts. One of the things we often forget about John the Baptist is he was the greatest prophet of the old covenant. Then we have Paul, the apostle, in prison, alone in a prison, alone and far from friends. All Asia has turned against me, he said. People were changing the gospel, they're twisting it, they're making it to suit their own ends, and here he is alone. And what does he do? He, he preaches a message that's full of hope, that's full of encouragement. He tells, Paul, or he tells Timothy to keep going. In 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word. Listen, this is the power of God unto salvation. Go and tell people about it. What's the difference between the two? Yes, they both had an encounter with Jesus. But as I said, John the Baptist was a prophet of the old covenant, whereas Paul was of the new. And as such, now the Holy Spirit had been poured out. In those, the old covenant, the Holy Spirit was something that was occasionally given, that was occasionally came upon someone. But now in the new covenant, we have the abiding presence. We might not feel anything, but he is there with us. He is our strength. He is our encourager. He is the one who opens the word to us and teaches us. He feeds us in the manna from heaven. It is the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference. It is him in our lives stirring us up and reminding us of these things. Just as Paul speaking to Timothy says, I'm bringing these to your remembrance. I want you to remember these things. I just want to read out that the song I mentioned at the beginning. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> the one that comes to mind when we read that verse. And I want you to think about the words of it for a moment, just as we close. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how his saving, this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. This should be our motto, something that we breathe. I know whom I have believed. What our Savior. Father God in heaven, Lord, we praise you, Lord. We thank you, dear God, in heaven for the gospel. We thank you for the good news. We thank you, dear God, in heaven for Calvary. 
We thank you, dear God, that you did not stand aside and leave us where you find us, Lord, but you picked us up and took us on, Lord, that you made a way, Lord God, in heaven for us to be redeemed, for us to be adopted into your family. God in heaven, I glorify you. I praise you, Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, in heaven for the faithful ministering of of previous generations, of our generation. I thank you, dear God, in heaven for those men and women, even in the, the, the quiet ways amongst their friends and families who have shared their faith, Lord. I thank you, dear God, in heaven that this gospel is precious to us. I thank you, dear God, in heaven for reminding us of its importance, of its value to us, Lord. God, we thank you for it. I pray, Lord, you bless us that you stir us up, Lord God, in heaven, that you give us confidence and assurance to go through, Lord God, to step forward and and to endure a little bit of suffering, Lord, just to share the faith, to tell someone about a better way, the only way, the truth and the life, Lord. God, we just glorify. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time among your people, Lord. We thank you for this time, Lord, gathered around your word, and we praise you and we give you glory. Amen. Good, thanks Jason. Lots of good stuff to chew on there over lunch other than your chicken. Amen. Glory to God. All right, we're going to receive this morning's tithes and offerings. The men will give you a few seconds there.